Scripture portion is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we love your word. We pray that as we sit under the instruction of your word that you would teach us, that the seed of your word would go deep into our hearts and that it would produce much fruit in this church. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, it's so good to be with you today. I'm sure many of you don't know who I am. If that's you, my name is John, and I work with Brant and Andrea and Alvin as part of the wider Christ City Network team. I work as the executive pastor, and so uh, occasionally I get the pleasure of coming and um, joining you, and uh, it's a real joy to be here. My son, Oliver, he calls this the other church because <laughs> he, he's come a few times and uh, he's like, oh, we get to go to the other church. And I'm like, yep, we get to go to the other church. Um, and he's really excited. He gets to play with Arian and uh, he's excited about that. Um, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Uh, and I don't mean to shame anyone here, but when was the last time you went for a run? There's a few smiles, a few, a few people pumping their fists as if to say this morning, uh, well done. When was the last time you went for a run? Uh, Brandt actually often asked me if I would go for a run with him. And of course, I say no, because um, I don't want to uh, embarrass him. Um, no, no, no. If you're anything like me, the very thought of running makes your knees ache. Um, the only time I seem to run nowadays is when I'm trying to stop my youngest from running into the road, um, and that tires me out enough, and so I don't often run. But when was the last time you ran? And I, when I say run, I mean, I mean like really run, like, like emptied your lungs run, like pushed yourself to your limit run. Because when I go for a run, it's, it doesn't often look like that. It's like I kind of get around the block, and I'm like, I'll, I'll walk home as a warm down, you know? And the reason I ask that today is because in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to draw an analogy between running and the Christian life, between running and the Christian life. He's going to challenge us that, that when we think about what it means to be a Christian, that it would be helpful, in fact, it would be appropriate to to think about ourselves as athletes. I don't know if you came this morning thinking of yourself as an athlete, I don't know if that's how you think about your Christian life. I don't know what metaphor best describes your Christian life, but maybe it's not an athlete. Maybe, maybe your life feels more like a spectator watching everyone else run. Maybe you're here and you, and you seem like you're looking at everyone else run this Christian life. Maybe you feel like your running days are over. You know, like you used to run, but now your hips hurt. Or maybe you, you're here and you think like you're not good enough to run. You're not good enough to participate in this race that we call the Christian life. 
My encouragement today is that we are all called to run. In fact, my challenge today is that you are called to run. The Christian life, Paul says, is like a race and, and we, all of us, are called to run. And so that's what I want to explore this morning with you. Um, and here's what I want us to see. I want to answer the question, how are we to run under three headings, right? How are we to run? The first is that we are to run with complete freedom, with complete freedom. The second is that we are to run for an eternal prize. And the third is that we are to run with total assurance. So that's our three points this morning. Complete freedom, an eternal prize, and total assurance. And so number one, complete freedom. Paul says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Over the last couple of months, it feels, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the city of Corinth, right? The church in Corinth, which is in this place, Corinth. And, and I'm sure we've built for ourselves a bit of a picture of what we feel like this city was like, right? It was a, a cosmopolitan city, competitive place, a dog-eat-dog city. We've, we've looked at that. It was a, a port city, so there's lots of trade going, going back and forth and, and an influx of, of traveling philosophers and, and teachers with new and interesting and competing ideas. And it was a, a, a city of commerce, right? So, so there was lots of money flying about and all of the associated power dynamics that go along with a lot of money flying about. I'm sure that as you've been looking at Corinth, the parallels between Corinth and Vancouver have been made over the weeks, right? But one more parallel for us today is that Corinth played host to a large athletic tournament called the Isthmian Games. Now, that's a really hard word to say, the Isthmian Games. You either focus on the S and call it Isthmian or you focus on the TH and call it Isthmian. But when you try and do both, is a calamity. The Isthmian Games. And these games, they, they happened every two years, and, and they were one actually of a collection of games that happened around Corinth, uh, around Greece, sorry. And so the Isthmian Games were a little bit like the Winter Olympics. There's your parallel. I don't know how many of you were here when Vancouver played host to the Winter Olympics. I, I was actually in London uh, when um, London hosted the real Olympics. <laughs> I know I've just triggered all the Canadians in here, but, you know, Canadians is like summer Olympics, winter Olympics. That's just not true. The rest of the world, there's the Olympics and the winter Olympics. <laughs> but if you were here when Vancouver hosted the winter Olympics, I imagine that it had a similar sort of buzz and, and, and excitement around the games. You know, a huge influx of people and money and, and the ability to watch the strongest and the fastest people in the known world at the time. And so the Corinthian church would have, would have all seen and experienced the buzz of the games and seen the athletes training and preparing and racing. In fact, the Apostle Paul, it's very likely, would have, would have seen the games, would have seen the athletes training and preparing and racing. And now Paul is going to use these athletes 
Use what they have seen as an analogy to illustrate what he's been saying over the last couple of chapters, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And I think actually it helps to bring some clarity on, on, on the tension that we can feel and what we have been hearing. You see, over the last couple of weeks in chapters 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been navigating a tension, hasn't he? He's been navigating a tension between rights and freedoms, your personal rights and freedoms, and other people. Right? His rights and freedoms and other people. So, so in chapter 8, having made the argument that idols are nothing, remember food offered to idols week? Remember that one? Having made the argument that idols are nothing and you're free to eat food that's offered to them, Paul then goes on to say this in 8 verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, so we have rights and freedoms, right? But take care to, to love the weak. Take care to love the other. In chapter 9, having made an argument that Paul deserves to get paid as an apostle, he then says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So again, you see the tension? He has these rights and freedoms. Yes, he does. But he endures anything for the sake of others. For the sake of others hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And last week in verse 19, Paul gives us a line that I think describes this tension really well, where he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So he's free from all, but he's also a servant or a slave to all. That's a dynamic that's been at play over the last couple of weeks. His rights and freedoms, yes, but what about his responsibility to other people? And this tension can be, can be confusing for us, but it's definitely difficult to navigate, isn't it? I'm sure as you've been talking through in your community groups about how this tension plays out in your life, it's difficult to navigate. How can we bo be both free and a slave? I think this morning, Paul is going to help us. I think Paul is going to help us by illustrating what true Christian freedom looks like. I don't know what you think about when you think of the word freedom. It's banded around a lot nowadays. But I think it would be fair to say that the, the way it's often understood is an absence of all restrictions, right? An absence of all restrictions. The removal of, of everything and anything that would hinder or restrict or impinge upon your ability to do something or to be something, right? So, so, so freedom of speech means absolutely no restrictions on what we say, right? Freedom of religion means no restrictions on, on who or what or how we worship. Sexual freedom means absolutely no restrictions on who or what or how or when or why we have sex. So freedom, broadly understood, is, is the absence of all restrictions and I, th I think it's helpful in some ways but it's but it's what I would call an incomplete definition an incomplete definition it's almost like half the story it's insufficient I think when you when you examine that definition of freedom to its logical conclusion 
You see, for us as Christians, freedom is the removal of some restrictions, right? Freedom in Christ, what does it mean? It means freedom from sin. He, in Hebrews, it, it says that, that we're to lay aside every weight and sin, right? That clings so closely. That, 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 there are things that, that hinder the way that we run. There are things that restrict us. For the, for the Christian, freedom is the removal of some restrictions. But it's not only the removal of some restrictions. Let's look at our text in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now, I want us for a moment to, to think and imagine a, an athlete who places no restrictions on themselves, right? No limitations. They, they get up when they want. They, they sleep when they want. They, they don't stretch or, or train. They don't want to limit themselves in that way. They, they take days off. They, they skip leg days because that's what you do. They eat what they want. They, they, they drink what they want. Now, now, what have I just described there? It's not an athlete, is it? That's the point. We try to imagine an athlete who does, who has, puts no restrictions on themselves. What we get is not an athlete. You get, you get me. <laughs> Paul says that's not how an athlete operates. It's not how an athlete lives. Because here's the problem with no restrictions being the definition of freedom. Here's the problem with freedom being freedom from everything and anyone is that it doesn't take into account what we are free for. What we are free for. You see, the athlete with no restrictions ironically restricts herself from the very thing she has been called to do, to run. Do you see? By imposing no limitations, she limits herself. No restrictions, ironically, ends up being not a freedom at all, but actually slavery. So the question is, what, what does lead to true freedom, or, or what I would like to call complete freedom? Complete freedom. In verse 27, Paul starts to talk about himself. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul is saying here that he's like the athlete that he's just described who exercises self-control in all things and, and keep under control here literally means he enslaves his body, right? He enslaves his body. Now here's the point. See, if no restrictions ends up being not a form of freedom, but a form of slavery. It's the right restrictions which can look on the surface like slavery. Like an athlete who enslaves her body when training or dieting or whatever, it's that that actually leads to true freedom. Do you see that? There's a, there's a, a, a huge irony here. One sounds like freedom and leads to slavery. The other sounds like slavery, but it leads to true freedom. Imagine now an athlete who, who puts the right restrictions on themselves. 
They're self-controlled with their, their time. They train and rest diligently. They, they eat the right food and drink the right drink. They, they discipline their bodies and keep them under control. They enslave their bodies. Why? Because for the athlete, there is a decision to, to give up for gain. To, to lay aside for something greater. To sacrifice something here for the sake of something there. This is the irony that this sort of enslaving, these right restrictions that we put on ourselves, they are the thing that bring about more and more freedom. And we see this as, as athletes trained, but we also see this elsewhere. I, I grew up with a, a friend of mine called James, who he currently works as the worship director of the church that I grew up in, and he is a phenomenal musician. Phenomenal musician. He, he's traveled the world and played with some of the world's greatest musicians. And, and as we were growing up, he would spend hours and hours and hours training, spending time on the piano and the bass and every other instrument. And guess what? I didn't. Actually, when I became a Christian, he taught me how to play a few chords on the guitar because that's what you do when you become a Christian. But who's more free? Me with my two chords? Or James? You see, it's, we remove the wrong restrictions. Yeah, we, that's part of freedom. But we also impose on ourselves restrictions. This is what leads to complete freedom. Now, a question that comes up here, and I think an appropriate question would be, so how do we know what are the right and wrong restrictions? You know, how do we navigate that? How do we know what to remove on, and what to impose as we navigate the Christian life? Well, it goes back to what I was saying before. We have to know what we are free for. We have to know what we are free to do. You know, the athlete controls herself, enslaves her body in order to do what she is called to do, to run. And so, what are we called to do? What are we made to do? What are we free for? Well, let's look again at our context, what Paul's been saying. The Apostle Paul has been speaking for two chapters around the idea of laying down his rights. Why? For the sake of loving others. For the sake of loving others. He's saying that being a Christian is not just about being free from sin, which is good and, and true and right. It's about being free to love. Look at Galatians 5. I find this interesting. In Galatians 5.13, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. And that's brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, if there's a view of freedom that is defined by the absence of all restrictions, which is the pervasive view of freedom in our culture, then the Christian view in opposition is, that, is about removing the wrong restrictions and embracing the right restrictions in order that we might live according to how we have been called, how we have been made to live. And guess what, Christ City, you were made to love. You were made to love. Sarah Williams, who is a church historian and, and theologian, she puts it like this. She says, Christian liberty 
is the spirit-empowered ability to choose to fulfill our obligations, to lay aside comfort for the sake of another, and to use all of our resources to honor and fulfill our created function. Do you see that? In order to fulfill your created function. Christ City, you were made to love. When we love, that is when we are living in complete freedom. Complete freedom. So here's the challenge. Are you running in complete freedom today? Are you running in complete freedom? Yes, having removed the restrictions on your life that are appropriate to remove, that's a whole nother sermon. The sin that hinders, yes, freedom from that. But also, have you added the right restrictions in your life? Have you laid down your rights on occasion for the sake of love? Have you given of yourself for the sake of the other? Have you given your time and resources for the sake of, of loving your neighbor, loving one another? Christ City, this is what you were made to do. This is what you were made for. You were made to be loved and to love. To be loved and to love. And so the question this morning is, will you run? Will you run in complete freedom? So that's number one, complete freedom. The second is we are to run for an eternal prize. Run for an eternal prize. In verse 25, it says this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now, one of the features of the Isthmian Games um, is that uh, as a prize to the winner, instead of, of having a medal around your neck, you would have a wreath or a crown on your head. And the wreath acted as a victor's crown to acknowledge your accomplishments in the race. And so when Paul describes a perishable wreath, the Corinthian church, they, they would have had in their mind, they would have pictured this symbol of victory on the heads of the athletes in the games. Right? They, they would have known exactly what Paul is referring to. They would have had an image in their mind. One of the interesting things that I read this week as I was preparing is that these crowns or these wreaths were originally made of pine, which makes a lot of sense to me. Pine, yeah, makes sense. But, but at some point, and actually probably in the time of Paul, they would have been made with celery. <laughs> celery. Can you imagine a wreath of celery after running the race at the Olympics? When I think about celery, I think about my wife, Sarah, who tries to resurrect withered celery by putting it in a cup of water and putting it on a kitchen table. Um, I imagine it's to fight against its perishability, right? Celery, what terrible crown. Here's the point, and I think it hits home the more you think about it, a celery crown. Here's the point. It's a fading crown. It's a fading glory. Paul says that the athletes are willing to exercise self-control in all things for the sake of a crown of celery. They're willing to give up everything for something that ultimately rots and turns to nothing. At this point, a really good question to ask ourselves would be, what are we running for? What is the prize at the end of your race? What is your... 
What's the goal? Lots of answers to that when we're honest with ourselves. Maybe some people want to be famous here, I don't know, or wealthy or healthy or esteemed. Maybe, maybe you want to build a business or, or you want to build a legacy, I don't know. What, what does success look like as you come to the winter years of your life and you look back? Now, I don't think the point that Paul is trying to make here is that perishable wreaths are completely pointless. Like, he's not saying, like, don't spend time on your business because ultimately it's going to fade to nothing. And, you know, I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying that, think of the athlete who is willing to give up everything for the sake of something of fleeting value that ultimately turns to nothing. How much more church should we run? How much more should we give up in order to gain something of eternal value? You see, the the point here is that there is a qualitative difference in the wreaths that we are running for, right? So what's the prize? What is is Paul talking about when he talks about an imperishable wreath? Because that's a good question. We don't necessarily know. It's not necessarily intuitive. What is... What is Paul willing to give up everything for? Why, why is he running? Well, I think there are actually two options that I think is one answer. Two options of what the imperishable wreath could be that I think is one answer. Option one, right? Option one is that the imperishable wreath is the Christians that Paul has been preaching to. The imperishable reef are the Christians that Paul has been preaching to. Here's why I think that. If you, if you look at the context of what Paul's been saying, what's Paul been doing all of this for? Why has he been running? Over and over again, he's been saying, I've been doing this in order to win more people for Jesus. Right? That's the context for this, in order to win more people for Jesus. And the language of wreath or crown, interestingly, is used elsewhere by Paul to describe the people that he's been ministering to. So if you look at 1 Thessalonians, he says this, for what is our hope or crown or, uh, or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And in Philippians, he says this, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So it could be that the imperishable wreath that Paul is talking about here, this crown is the people that he has been preaching the gospel to, the people that he has won for the gospel. The second option is that it's talking about Paul's salvation. Right? Paul and, and the other New Testament authors elsewhere talk of a crown of righteousness, for example, or a, or a crown of life. They're all speaking about what the Christian receives on the day when Jesus returns. The crown is a metaphor for the salvation that has been revealed to us at the end. So there are your options. Is it is the imperishable reef the, the people that Paul has preached to or is it Paul's salvation? Is it their salvation or is it his salvation? My answer is yes. My answer is yes. Is it their salvation or is it his salvation? I, I think, I think it's, it's just all caught up in there. Here's why I think that. I'm not just sort of copping out. Here's why I think that. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. 
And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. And then look back at, uh, at verse 23 last week. What does Paul say he does all this for? Why, why does he do what he does? Why does he run in the race? He says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Christ City, do we run for their salvation or do we run for ours? Uh, yes. The prize we run for is, is for us, but it's also for them. The prize of the Christian life is a sharing in Christ, a sharing in the good news of Jesus. You see, at the, at the end, what we get is Jesus. It's to be with Jesus. It's to receive all that he has won for us. It's to receive all that he has prepared for us. It's to enjoy him forever in perfect union and peace and love. It's to enjoy complete and total rest, complete and total joy, complete and total contentment. It's to enjoy all of this, all of the gospel promises that we have for us in our New Testament at the end of our days are ours, yes, but they're also ours. We enjoy them together. And so Christ City, will you run? Will you run it in complete freedom to love others? And will you run for a glorious and eternal prize, this sharing together, this sharing in the good news of Jesus? So one, complete freedom. Two, an eternal prize. And finally, run with total assurance. Run with total assurance. Verse 26, he says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I myself should be disqualified. So Paul has encouraged the Corinthian church to, to run the race of faith in complete freedom, freedom from sin, yes, but freedom to love, this complete freedom and th and then the reason that we run is to obtain this glorious and eternal prize the prize of our faith this great salvation this sharing in the good news of Jesus this union with Christ and union with also those who love him and then Paul says but if i don't run in this way after preaching about this good news i myself would be disqualified now this is one of those verses that you you read and you, it can unnerve us, right? It's an unnerving text, right? What, what does Paul mean by being disqualified? Is, is Paul concerned here that there's a chance that he will not obtain the prize? Is this a verse that suggests that, that we could live the Christian life and then at the end find out that we have been disqualified? Like we haven't been good enough or we haven't done enough or... Now, I'm just going to say from the outset, no. That's not what this is saying. But let me show you why I think this is not what this is saying. When we look at what Paul has been doing, right? In these, in these verses, in 26 and 27, what's, what's he actually doing? He, he's comparing two lives, isn't he? He's comparing what we might call two 
spiritualities. On the one hand, we might call the, the aimless runner, the aimless spirituality. On the other hand, is what Paul does is, 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 is a disciplined spirituality. That, that's the contrast that's being made here. Paul says he doesn't run aimlessly, but he runs with discipline. That's the two lives on display. And the implication here is that the aimless runner is the one who fails and the disciplined runner is the one who succeeds. And so the question is, what, is the, what does he mean by an aimless runner or a disciplined runner? What's the difference between them? What's the difference between verse 26 and verse 27? That's a key interpretive question to figure out whether or not what we mean by being disqualified. So, what's the difference between the aimless runner and the disciplined runner? Well, the first thing to say is it's not effort, is it? It's not effort. You think about it. This text is not saying that your salvation is dependent upon your effort because it can't be. It can't be because on the surface, the aimless runner and the disciplined runner are putting in the same amount of effort. The one who's boxing the air is burning the same amount of calories as the one who is boxing and hitting the target. The aimless runner is, is expending the same amount of energy running in the wrong direction. So what's the difference? Why does one obtain the prize and the other doesn't? Well, I think that the difference between the aimless runner and the disciplined runner isn't effort. It's the prize. It's the prize. It's, it's the goal. It, it's, it's where we're looking. It's who we look to. You see, if you think about it, the aimless runner doesn't know where they're running to. And so they go through the motions of maybe a religious life. They go through the motions. It's like the, the Corinthians who, who are puffed up with knowledge but don't show any love. They're going through the motions of this, this Christian life hoping that in some way all of their efforts might make a difference. Here's the problem with aimless running. Here's the problem with aimless spirituality. The first problem is this. You can put in a ton of effort only to find that you have run 100 miles in the wrong direction. Right? It's the boxer who empties his tank only to find that he hasn't once hit the target. Ton of effort only to figure out that you've You've just missed it. The second problem is when we don't know where we're going, the only thing that we have to evaluate progress is our effort. Right? The aimless runner is the one who, because he has nowhere to look, starts to focus so much on his legs. Starts to put in lots and lots of effort because that's the only way in which you can evaluate whether or not he's progressing or not with no clue as to whether he's running in the right direction. I'm going to be bold and say maybe that describes your spirituality this morning. Maybe you feel like you're running and you're, you're, you're trying really hard, but you, you don't know where you're going, so you don't know whether or not you're progressing or not. Or maybe you're focusing so much on yourselves that you, your, only, your only measure of progress is, is, is just how hard you try. 
Let me tell you where that leaves you. Let me tell you what that sort of spirituality does. It, it leaves you with no assurance that you will make it to the end. It leaves you with no assurance that you'll make it to the end. And, and worse still, it might leave you with a false assurance. You're putting in lots of effort and you're just running in the wrong direction. If that's you, here's, here's my encouragement today. My encouragement is not to try harder and do better because I don't know if you're running in the right direction or not. I want to tell you to, to, to just try a bit harder. You could be running off a cliff for all I know. My encouragement is to turn your eyes from yourself and turn them to Jesus. Turn them to Jesus. So stop running with your eyes fixed and focused on your legs is to lift your gaze and focus on the prize. Focus on Jesus. You see, the difference between the aimless runner and the disciplined runner is, is simply Jesus. That's the difference. Yeah. This is what happens when we look to Jesus, when we have our eyes fixed on him, when we read our Bible and we, and we see all that he is, and we see all that he has accomplished for us on, on our behalf. When we look to Jesus, look at what we see. We see a Jesus who doesn't just call us to run, we see the Jesus who ran the race before us. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life of complete freedom in love in order to win our salvation on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Paul's relying on. You see, Jesus doesn't just call us to run, he runs alongside us. He doesn't leave us alone, does he? He pours out his spirit so that we might have Jesus in us. It's Christ in us who is the hope of glory, right? Jesus doesn't just call us to run. He promises to sustain us and to preserve us to the end. Paul says to the church in Philippians that he who has began a good work, what will he do? He will bring it to completion. What does the author of Hebrews say? Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see, the reason Paul disciplines his body is not so that he will gain salvation. It's not so that he will maintain salvation. It's not in fear that he will lose his salvation. It's in response to this great salvation that has been revealed to him in Jesus Christ. And so he runs with his eyes on the prize. And guess what? Paul runs with total assurance, knowing that he who began a good work in him will also bring it to completion. So Christ City, will you run this morning? Will you run in, in complete freedom? Self-control, discipline, this complete freedom, not this secular freedom, this, this, this half freedom that I've been talking about, but this complete freedom. Living as you were called to live, loving others. Will you run for an eternal prize? Not running for a perishable wreath, but an imperishable one. This sharing in the good news of Jesus and will you run with total assurance not aimlessly but disciplined fixing our eyes on the founder and perfecter of our faith Jesus Christ let me pray Father would you help us to see Jesus this morning would we take our eyes from our legs as we run 
to the prizes we run? Would we see the beauty in the words that we sing, in the meditations of our heart, in our reflections on your word? Would we see the beauty of Christ? And would we run? Would we run in complete freedom? Would we run for an eternal prize and would we run with total assurance? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.